All right, are we all ready? Now I gotta remember what I say. <laughs> oh, <laughs> all right. Hello, everybody. I'm so excited to be with you all. This is Stephanie Gilston Paul. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And welcome to the HR Wonder Women with Wendy and Anne. Please enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to the latest edition of HR Wonder Women. I'm your host, Wendy, and with me as always is Anne. Hello, Anne. Hello, Wendy. How are you this evening? I'm good. I, you know, I feel like we need to be honest with our listeners, and this is a take two. We had some technical difficulties with our first recording with Stephanie, and uh, but that's okay because we had a great uh, conversation, and uh, now we get to do it again, which I'm super excited about. I think it's uh, I love getting another chance to talk with Stephanie, so I'll be honest with about that too. <laughs> take two. Uh, I, I think it'll be great. Oh, of course. Of course. So um, we will kick off the show because our last conversation was awesome and a lot of content. So we'll jump right into it. But we do always start with uh, sharing how we identify so that you better understand the lens through which we see the world. So I am Wendy. I am white, straight, side gender, female, Christian, non-disabled. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. How about you, Anne? Uh, yes, pretty much the same. And um, I think that it is important. You know, there are a lot of different ways that we identify. And um, it depends on on the situation, sort of what lens we're really kind of leading with. And I think for the purpose of this conversation, where we are exploring intersectional feminism, that it is really important to identify all the, the ways that we come at this conversation and and I know that I have a lot of privilege. So I want to, I want to acknowledge my privileges um, and how that influences the way that I see the world and participate in this conversation. So I am a white, cisgender, straight, non-disabled woman, um, Christian. Um, yeah. I mean, pretty much if there is a privileged middle-class, I mean, you know, just a well-educated. So yeah, I mean, if there's a privilege out there, I probably have it. And I just want to be honest about that, that um, those are things that I'm constantly kind of trying to deconstruct and make sure that while those are, those are my identities, that they, that I don't allow them to um, be such heavy filters that I can't see, can't see the real world. So. Exactly. We, we have to know the filters are there to, in order to remove them. Exactly. So with that, I am excited to once again, introduce Stephanie Ghostin-Paul, who is an internationally recognized speaker, facilitator, organizational development consultant, coach, and recovering lawyer. She brings over 15 years of experience in advancing equity, fostering inclusive leadership, and sparking systems transformation using racial justice and healing frameworks. Stephanie's unique approach skillfully and wholeheartedly combines her sharp legal mind, problem-solving skills, and love of people to powerfully serve clients and challenge existing systems. She has coached leaders and staff in the nonprofit, for-profit, education, foundation, and public sectors to integrate equity and inclusion into the core identities of those organizations. She's well-versed in assessing organizational culture, tool building, and strategic coaching for equity. Through her individual coaching work, she's dedicated to helping clients embody being free, whole, and enough. She's helped hundreds of clients find ordinary ways to live extraordinarily and to stop setting and settling in life and business. Stephanie walks alongside her clients as they discover ways to stop hiding, get clarity, and start living on purpose. She's also a best-selling author featured in 20 Beautiful Women, Volume 3, 20 More Stories That Will Heal Your Soul, Ignite Your Passion, and Inspire Your Divine Purpose. 
and I Am Beautiful. She's the forthcoming author of the 42% and the Take Nothing When I Die series. She's also on the board for Global Youth Leadership Institute, a program she completed in high school and as a member of as a member of its founding cohort. Sorry. Uh, Stephanie currently resides in Atlanta, Georgia. She enjoys cooking spicy dishes with her partner, playing recreational flag football, and finding new flavors of delicious tea. And we had a great conversation last time about tea, and I'm excited actually to revisit that. So with that, welcome, Stephanie. We are so excited to, to get to have this conversation. And uh, we want to start um, with that same the same question. We do know that intersectional, intersectionality matters. It's a reason we do this podcast. And we have many different ways that we identify and different parts of our identity matter more in some spaces than others. So when thinking about this conversation, how do you identify? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. The second welcome um, was just as wonderful. And so I'm excited to be having this conversation with y'all again. Um, For this conversation, I feel like it's important to name that I'm a cisgender Black woman um, using she, her pronouns, formally and informally educated. And um, last time I said intermittently abled, and today I'm going to go with temporarily abled. Um, I have been having some issues with my back as a result of a car accident. And so, but today I'm feeling really, really great. Wonderful. Say, I think especially for for those of us who are intermittently abled and also intermittently disabled, it's important to celebrate those days that you feel really good. Uh, so, Stephanie, your your Twitter bio says you help Black women embody being free, whole, and enough. Mm-hmm. How does your work as a speaker, coach, and author fulfill that mission? And how did you get started in this work? Great question. Um, I think it's something that I've always embodied. Um, I think the roles that I've played throughout my career, the the ways that I chose to be of service and help people have been leading me to this mission or life vision, as I call it. Um, But I didn't necessarily know that until I really clarified last year. And so I think my journey starts pretty young, um, uh, as you named as part of my bio. I was a part of um, a group in high school uh, called, back then it was called YLI. It was the Youth Leadership Institute. I was the first, very first cohort of young folks that went through this three-year program. So we were guinea pigs in some ways. And also we had a I think we had a lot of agency to to name how we wanted this program to go. And so during that three year program, the first year really focuses on culture and identity, self and community identity. The second year focuses on um, religious pluralism and the third year focuses more on environmental sustainability. And so having this experience as a high schooler, I don't I don't think a lot of high schoolers, um, you know, I think it's a privilege that I was involved in that program. It really set me up to see myself as a leader, no matter what space I would be in, knowing that I would be doing some kind of work that had to do with social justice and culture and, and identity. And so that followed me throughout my undergrad career. I was an educator, um, a volunteer. I was a teacher's aide. In law school, I was always involved in something that seemed like a side project or a side hustle, um, but that was really what was 
giving me fulfillment and I was finding passion in directly impacting and helping folks. And so um, I didn't actually start my own company until 2013. And I really started um, as a leadership coach, a women's empowerment coach, doing work with women's groups in DC. Um, and then it wasn't until I, I I moved, I did a couple cross country moves, DC to Portland and then Portland to Atlanta where I reside now. After coming from Portland and coming uh, leaving a toxic, I think, city and job situation and out of sorts in a lot of ways, um, I, I took some time to really rest and get reconfigured. And it was within those three months that I came up with this life vision. And I was seeing the ways in which everything I've done up until that point was fitting fit into this purpose that I've articulated. And so what I knew I had to do was do my own work if I wanted to take other folks through that work. And the work that I've been doing my whole life was first and foremost, being free, um, centering myself and making decisions from that point instead of centering everybody else and their needs and how they needed me to show up. Um, being whole, meaning I don't actually need to be someone else or something else, knowing that I have everything I need um, to do the job that I'm sent here to do. Um, and then just being enough. I mean, I think through internalizing narratives and experiences of um, systems of oppression, I had internalized narratives about Am I smart enough? Am I beautiful enough? Am I capable? Like, can I really do this? And so knowing that, you know, I'm, I am enough. I have enough. I'm smart enough. I'm capable. Um, it's really the work that I had to do first. And so when I talk about Black women and buying being free whole enough, I think, um, as I explained last time, centering the experiences and impact to Black women is a, is a great way for us to, to see if that metric is actually working, right? Because there are lots of quotes that talk about, you know, when black women are free, then we, then that means we're all free. Because right now, on the end of every um, indicator, on the end of um, when I think of statistics, um, black women are lowest or most negatively impacted by those statistics. And so last time I talked about, you know, the life expectancy for Black trans women is 35 years old right now. That is completely unacceptable. And so if we want to check to see, like, how are we doing as a society um, when Black trans women can live up to their full potential and live out more of their life, I think we'll be doing better. But until then, my work will be centered on developing not only those folks and their experience, but also community and institutional spaces for them to be freehold enough in as well. Yeah, you know that I, you shared that statistic last night. That's such a, a heartbreaking statistic. And quite honestly, it should make us angry that that that's true. Um, and we, sh you know, I have been thinking a lot. So the last time we spoke, and I don't know, I don't remember where it came in the conversation. So I'm throwing it in here right now in case it doesn't come up again. Yeah. You talked about that every single action that we take, every single thing that we do is either reflecting the current system or is in resistance to the current system. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's so important. And to kind of combine that, to be thinking about how, how you can walk with people and help them, you know, especially um, black women to, to embody this idea of being free and whole and enough and how that is resistance. Um, mm -hmm. Um, that's that's really, really important. Um, when we had Janine Truitt on several months ago, she talked about how when Black women, we were talking specifically about in the workplace and corporate settings, how um, how Black women find themselves having to regress toward the mean, and the mean is a white man. Yep. 
and how black women are the furthest from that mean. And I I have thought about that a lot, you know, that, um, that the answer isn't to change what the mean is. The answer is that there shouldn't be a mean Hmm. that every, that everything has to regress to. Right. So Everything that you just said leads into the next question, which is that when you were on Leading in Color, you said when you take care of those on the margins, you take care of everybody. So you've already touched on it, but um, go a little deeper on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, on the podcast, I think this conversation was in the context of companies really getting excited about diversity and inclusion initiatives or policies, but then not actually valuing the folks who are coming in. So they're saying, we want to be more diverse. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we want more people of color. (laughs) And when those people of color come in, they get cycled through and they have a bad experience and their core culture has not changed and their expectation has been for those folks of color to assimilate to what is already going on rather than contribute to or be a part of the current culture and identity of that of that um, company. And so my advice, um, I think she asked me like, well, what, what should they do instead of become more diverse? I said, focus on inclusion. There are ways that you can center folks who are most impacted now without harming people of color, trying to bring them into, you know, the circus that you already have going on. And to expand upon that, I just think, well, we don't center those who are on the margins or most impacted. What we end up doing is recreating hierarchies that exist outside of that group that we're actually trying to tear down. And the 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 example that we talked about last time was like, well, women need to do this. If we were to be really truthful and honest, the advice or the solutions or the policies that come out of those um, conversations, even if it's not explicitly named, really only impact or help white women. Mm-hmm. And so if we were to focus within the group of women, who is having a marginalized experience? Who is most negatively impacted? And we move from that space, um, then we would have solutions that actually help for everyone. When I think about like the pay gap, that was, I just saw something on Twitter today, like, oh yeah, all we need to do is get, you know, 21 more cents. Well, for white women, yeah, but that's really not going to help Latinx women. That's not going to help Native women. That's not going to help Black women. They're still not getting to that dollar with that 21 cents. If we started our inquiry from who is further, like you said, furthest from the means, are the solutions that come out of that would be more helpful for more people. And I think for me, like this, it's been really helpful to think about this in terms of a literal frame. And I have, this comes from Kimberly Crenshaw. You know, she talks about frames when she talks about intersectionality. Mm-hmm. I think right now we are hyper focused on that mean, which is, you know, older, white, cisgender, straight men of property, like who have money and who are educated. And we are creating policy around their experiences, around their fears, around how they're impacted. And if we were to widen that lens or change, you know, what we're focused on, our policies would also shift and would help more people. So that's what I was saying when I when I when I named that on um, leading in the leading color podcast. I, I like the idea of leading with inclusion because that's I don't want to say easy, but you know, you, you don't, you, you can do with do it with what you have right now. And if you have an inclusive environment that's welcoming to everybody, the diversity will come, I, I assume, mm-hmm. I hope. <laughs> and, and but they'll have a much easier time um, being being welcomed and feeling like they're part of the team. Mm-hmm. If you're already doing if you're already being inclusive to everybody, um, and not just people that look and think like you. Exactly. And that's where typically what I see happening is a leadership team makes a decision and they say, 
hey, we want to be more diverse. So the leadership team who's leading with all their bias, with their with their experiences, what they believe to be true and right about themselves and other people, they start to hire people, like you said, either that maintain the status quo or are open to assimilating. And they're typically in entry level positions. So that core group stays the same, like nothing really shifts with the leadership team. And even if they were to, I've seen like, oh, we, we will have one person of color or one one woman of color. Um, that's not enough to change the dynamic on that team. So that same group of mm-hmm. people are making the same decisions. Nothing has fundamentally changed. If they if companies start to focus on inclusion, that leadership team would shift who's on it, how much power they have, what like what their positionality is in the organization, who they who they're accountable to, their relationships with community. That kind of, that stuff can happen without subjecting folks of color or other underrepresented groups to the harm that comes when you don't do that core culture shift. Right. And and when we don't do that culture shift first and we just go for the external, what my boss calls eyeball diversity, um, when we just go for that, then it also becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy that it doesn't work because we bring people of color in or people from other marginalized groups and we don't do anything about inclusion and we do that harm and so they don't stay. Mm-hmm. And then they leave and it's like, oh, well, we tried. I mean, we tried. We hired somebody. We had somebody on the leadership team that was a person of a woman of color, but she didn't stay. It just doesn't work. And and it it reinforces the biases that are already there yeah. um, because it's not it's like we didn't do anything wrong. Not it, us. Couldn't, it couldn't be us. <laughs> right. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Be us. exactly. So Stephanie, recently you shared this quote on Twitter. There's really no such thing as the voiceless. There are only the, the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And this is attributed to Arndt Hadi Roy. So how can we give voice to those who have been silenced? And how can we as allies help amplify those voices? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is where we talked about um, there, there being no neutral here. So I'll get yes. to that in just a second. Yeah. Um, I think that when I think about not being neutral, if I understand that my action or inaction, my thoughts, my beliefs about myself and other people are either perpetuating a system or they're resisting a system, then that means that I, I'm always, as someone with privilege in lots of areas, I have a choice whether to act or to take up space or to have to use my platform in a certain way. And so when I think about the idea, I know we talked about like, do you you call it allyship? Do you call it co-conspirators or whatever, however you want to name it? These are not fixed identities. It's something that we're living into moment to moment. It's not a badge. It's not a one time like, oh, we have bestowed this upon you. You are an ally now. (laughs) It's it's moment by moment earning, um, earning and giving back. Actually, I would say giving back the the privilege that you have accumulated that you have not earned yourself. And so when I think about this question, I think about like, if we're, we're not actually giving voice to the voiceless, we are moving out of the way sometimes. For me, that looks like maybe not taking a contract where I feel like it should go to someone else, whether it's someone from an identity group that that, that organization um, represents, or it's someone who, um, you know, has had, has done less work than me and needs more experience or is struggling. So uh, it could be stepping back, moving aside, giving up 
not speaking at that conference when there are no there, there's there are no accessibility options for folks who can't hear as well or who don't read sign language. Maybe it's like actually divesting myself of some of the benefits that I've reaped from the privileges that I have. So I think about like what does that look like in terms of reparations? What does that look like in terms of like giving up money, my body, something else that I'm holding on to because of the privileges that I have? And I think um, last time I said, you know, the, the thing that we do or don't do, I think doesn't matter as much as why or how we do or don't do that thing. And so if, as people are thinking about like, what can I do or not do? How do I amplify? How do I, you know, move out of the way? I want to make sure folks are not um, are thinking about like, why am I doing this? Am I doing this to center myself? Am I quote unquote sacrifice? Is this like, am I doing this for recognition? And so again, it's like a, a lot of the things that marginalized groups are asking for are for us to give up something. Sometimes it's like the thing that we don't want to. Sometimes it's comfort. Like you got to give up. You got to be uncomfortable. You got to be willing to make mistakes and be uncomfortable. Um, but the why is really important too. like, what are we doing when no one's around? What are we doing when we don't get to snap a picture and put it on social media? And that to me feels much more important than the actual like, what do you do as an ally? Yeah, that's really interesting because um, when you first when you first said, oh, the, the why of why you do it is more important than the what that you do. Uh, my first reaction was, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. And impact. Impact is more important than <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you're right. And it um I'm and I will say I will be, I mean, completely transparent. It is difficult. Um, everything about our culture, everything about the way we have been socialized, um, teaches us that we want like that pat on the back and we want to be recognized and we want to be rewarded. And we talk about this, you know, at, at work. We talk about like employee recognition and how do we make sure that employees feel valued and appreciated. It's it's the way that we're wired and it's the way that society moves forward. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard to to, to find to, to you almost have to be like really creative and find ways to be doing the work where you're sure nobody's going to see you and then not get to tell anybody about it and just sit with it and be like no I just did it and that takes some intentionality and some practice and sometimes um and okay now I'm just really speaking for myself and maybe this will not resonate with anyone but for myself I know that there are times where I just practice that and just sit with it so that I learn to like die to that need for recognition because mm -hmm. I can't I can't I I can never trust my own motives if I am being recognized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is really interesting. I, I think it's I definitely think it's a human need. I also think and this is just my experience. I think because of some of the elements of whiteness mm -hmm. around like perfect. It's it's like uh, it's about perfectionism. Like, am I even doing this right? You know, like, am I doing the allyship thing right? Um, and I, I catch I'm, I'm socialized into whiteness, too, and ascribe to whiteness in a lot of ways. And so it's like where like how am I centering myself in this and how do I step away? from it and I don't think that there's a perfect or like a oh you're an, you were 98% selfless and then the 2% <laughs> still like that, you know I don't think it's that and I think it you know it's always a practice and I know there are consequences for that practice too so that's where we take care of the impact like me practicing like being a co-conspirator or like choosing 
choosing, which is still a privilege to either step in or step out, um, that has consequences. People are harmed because of my because of me not choosing. Um, but also, I'm also I'm I'm always going to be on a journey. I'm never going to get it perfect or right, and I still have to like stay in the ring. I still have to you know keep. I, I need to continue to do what I need to do. And I, I think this, the the reason I don't like the word ally is really, I had a really, really great therapist in Portland. And she said, like, how can you be an ally to something that you created? Like, how can you be an ally to something that you benefit from? Ooh. And I was like, you know what? That is, that is true. Like, you're not helping me for something that is created for you, by you, you know? So like, just even. That, that phrasing or that framing still centers like a, a savior narrative. Like I'm, I'm going to do this good thing out of the goodness of my heart or, or whatever, out of whatever reason. But it's something that dominant groups created and that they benefit from. So, so yes, yes, all, yes to all of that. <laughs> Great. Another, another thing I'm going to sit with for a while now. Yeah, no, that's really good. That's really good. And I mean, you're right. So like, just, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to go any further. I'm going to stop centering myself. Okay. <laughs> So it's all about you, you Anne. Um, all about you. You know, <laughs> I, 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 um, I'm gonna blog soon, and people can read it or not read it, and it'll be great. Well, I can. I, I just want to say that that I appreciate where we're taking this conversation because you know, Anne, you and I are are trying to get it right, and you know, and a lot of times, I know, I'm sure you're in the same boat. You struggle with what do we share and what do we don't. When is it? And you know, looking at your motives or whatever too. But you know, if I share a mistake I made, am I sharing? it because I want people to learn or am I sharing it to see hey look at me look at how much better I am now there's you know it's it's a struggle struggle. also it can I think that that to me seems more typical of what I see but I've also seen this like almost fetishization well that was difficult fetishization of like being called out like call me out you know tell me I'm a bad like it's like that's that's going too far. And I, I, again, I think it's still centering on that person's need for validation or like, you know, whatever. Like it's like a self-flagellation thing where some folks really want to be right. called out. And I, I feel right. like that's productive yeah. either. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. And it's one of those things too that I, you know, I know Anne and I both struggle with. And one of the things that, you know, to be completely selfish that I love about doing the HR Wonder Women is not just learning from people like you, Stephanie, but it is is increasing my exposure to women of color because I am in a very, 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 very white community. Um, So I have to go out and I have to seek people like you. And so I appreciate you taking time to talk with us um, and challenge us in the way that you are. So, um, but enough about me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this is like some of the most that we have centered ourselves in a conversation since we started doing this podcast. Um, So let's get back to you, Stephanie. So I I think I said this last time too, that um, our conversation, our original conversation was the first time that um, you and I had ever spoken. And so I did a little bit of internet stalking before we met. And one of the things that um, really kind of struck me was your newsletter. And in your newsletter, you say that you center your newsletter around individual self-care and community care and culture building, and then diversity, equity, and inclusion building. And I really um, love all three of those. And so 
talk to us a little bit about why each of those like buckets, I guess, are important and then also how they connect to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they actually correspond with um, like my theory of change around how transformation happens. Mm -hmm. And um, and it also corresponds to the fact that these systems that we've been talking about, racism, sexism, homophobia, patriarchy, all these things, they don't just have a singular impact. And so what I was explaining is that typically when I work with organizations, they really want to focus on the the like large scale picture of like, oh, how do we eliminate racism? Which is like a huge question. And I'm like, okay, you're going to owe me a lot more money, um, <laughs> which I told an audience in Portland um, uh, as I was speaking about this. But they tend to be focused really on the institutional impact. It feels very external. It's very like surface level policy based. So they're like, give us an equity lens to go through our policies with and like like give us give us an overview um and they're thinking about it on a on a on a institutional wide level which i don't think is a bad thing it's a place to start but we also know that institutions are made of cultures and cultures are made of people and these policies that we're talking about they're made by people <laughs> who are bringing their experiences and their bias and their conditioning um with them to the table and so i want to be doing work at each of those sites of change, transformation, or liberation, um, because I because they are one one and the same. They're an iteration of each other. And for me, this this really came through to my work prominently um, after reading Adrienne Marie Brown. Um, she's got lots of books out, um, but the last two are um, Pleasure Activism and emergent strategy. And after I read emergent strategy, I really, this, it really just crystallized for me. She talks in there about the idea of fractals, that the big things are actually small things and the small things are the big things. We could break down a large system into very small parts. And so, whereas what folks want to uh, focus on the big picture, which is, again, it's great. It's a great starting point. It can't just, it can't be the ending point. And so instead of getting overwhelmed or drained by working at the, at the institutional level, why don't we look at what we can control, especially on a day-to-day -day basis? And that starts with ourselves. So I've translated into my work. I, I talk about ecosystems. How do you build an ecosystem of one? How do you start with the individual work that it takes to rid yourself of, divest yourself of the conditioning that you've received? How do you um, think differently and treat yourself differently, which will impact how you treat others? So as individuals start to treat themselves and others differently, we start to change cultural norms. We say, oh, it's not okay to talk to each other like that. It's not okay to believe this about this group. And so our norms start to change both formally and informally. And then institutions can codify those change in no norms with policies, with programs, with a shift in identity. Okay, we're all related to each other in a different way, this kind of language or this belief is not acceptable. Now we're going to codify this. It's going to show up in your performance review. It's going to show up, um, you know, when we talk about our vision, our values. And so there's change to be had on all three of these levels. And again, it, it, to me, it boils down to mostly what can we actually control? There's always personal work to do. There will, there will be no shortage of personal work. And even to your point that you just made, I think when I think about how change happens, how learning happens, we as individuals are a part of so many communities. So you think about like your work community, your faith community, or lack thereof, your education community, your racial community, your gender community, your family. There are all these sites where 
we have a responsibility as an individual to show up and do our own work in those sites. And then as we as we do our work there, we can also step outside of those sites to engage across lines of difference. Because, I mean, the reality is we live in a very segregated United States. And so our groups are pretty much homogenous. You know, if you think about friends, family, like maybe your closest five communities are probably pretty homogenous. So I love I just love thinking about it in terms of ecosystems. And it's been really helpful for me to bucket my work and then also my um, like share stories or expertise around those three buckets. Yeah, I really love that approach because I do think um, no easy answers. No, there are no easy answers. <laughs> but I also think that it's important to like remember all three kind of at this have to be happening at the same time. And I think we tend to want, we tend to want this work to be linear, right? I finish this piece and then I go on to the next piece and then I go on to the next piece. And it's always like cyclical and happening in parallel. It's messy. It's messy. Yeah. And to remember that all of them need to be happening on some level at the same time. And that every time you make, you know, every time you do something in one, it has an impact on the other. It's just such a great way to focus and not lose sight of what's going on in the bigger picture. Definitely. Agreed. All right. Well, Stephanie, it is now time for everyone's favorite part of the show, which is our half hour question connection. Just like on the HR Social Hour, but here on HR Wonder Women, we have a female twist. Having said that, we always love to talk about networking um, because it gives us a lot of insight and helps just gives ideas for other people as well on how to make networking a little bit easier. So tell us, how has networking helped you in your career and what's been effective for you? Yes, I, <laughs> I shared that um, this question made me think of all the ways networking hasn't been helpful. And so um, <laughs> the, the cool thing is, I think I'm still on a journey of like figuring out where I fit in and how I need to show up to these type of things. And then I also was able to think about how people have um, networked with me or provided opportunities in ways that maybe I didn't see or were not very traditional or conventional. So even like, I mean, I was networking on Twitter and met you all. So like that, like I need to also hold space for and name the non-traditional ways. Um, but when I think about networking in person and in, in very traditional, conventional ways, um, I am an introvert. I'm an extrovert introvert. I'm, I like to say I'm a paid extrovert, um, paid to talk to people and facilitate and all that good stuff. So these events can really take a lot out of me. I'm not a huge fan of like small talk. I'm not like the person who's like playing the game with the business cards, like trying to give out as many as they can. Um, so I've been really selective this year year um, of where I spend my energy and how I spend my energy when I show up to these events. So I try to try my best to do as much research beforehand as possible. Typically, I can see who's coming, who are the speakers, like I can do some research on them. I typically um, go in with a goal of like, I'm going to talk to three people. I'm going to talk to two people I don't know and one of the speakers. And um, before I go in to talk to those folks, I have a very specific question to ask. So I'm, I'm not like, how are you doing? And like that, that is important. I want to know how folks are doing, but I also don't want to, as an introvert, I feel like I get really depleted quickly when it's just small talk. So I usually come with a very specific question based on something that they've said 
or their body of work. And then as much as possible, because these folks are busy, because it's networking and like, you know, as soon as you leave, everything goes out the window. Um, I try to start the follow up or the plan to follow up right then and there. So it's like, OK, I'm sending you um, a LinkedIn request right now or, hey, um, I'm sending you an email. It's me, Stephanie. Send me your calendar link so I can you know, follow up with you next week. Because I find that as soon as I leave that, as soon as I leave those doors, it's like 90 percent less likely that I'll actually connect with them again and get what I ask for or what I need or collaborate in the way that I want. Yeah. And I think that that's really important. Um, we get a lot of guests. There are a lot of introverts out <laughs> there. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it, every once in a while, we'll get somebody who says, and I'm an extrovert. And I'm always very excited because you may not realize this about me, but I am an extrovert. Um, and so I can work a room, but I also will like make real connections with people. And then I'll get back to my office and I'll get busy and I will, you know, forget to ever follow up until the next year at that conference or whatever. And I think that that, um, I think that's true for many people, right? Um, I don't think that that's an introvert, extrovert thing. I think that's a, we live in a world where we tend to be very busy for good or bad. I, I think that that, a lot of people have said similar things in that, like, I, I figure out a couple key people that I really want to make sure that I meet. I think about some ideas, but you're the first person who has said, and then I make sure that I'm making that connection right there. We connect on LinkedIn right then. We take out our calendars right then. We make a follow-up. I send an email right then. Um, I think that's just such a great plan um, because because otherwise you make, you make connections. And I'm not, like, when those connections don't follow up, that doesn't mean that a real connection wasn't made in the moment, but it takes so much intentionality to take a connection that you make in a moment and have it become a relationship. Um, so I think that that's um, a wonderful tip that um, I think many of us should take and think about in terms in our own networking as well. So talk to us about women that you read or follow for professional insight. Yes. And I've <laughs> cleaned up my act a little bit because I felt like I was totally blanking on folks' names last time. So um, and I was like, you know, the person with the, I can see the like Twitter avatar and I cannot think of it. So I did my research. Um, first and foremost, I, when I talked about being temporarily abled, um, I, I followed this woman, black woman who is an activist who's disabled on Twitter. Her name is Velissa Thompson. And I've learned so much from her. She um, she put, she has content. She puts out, she answers questions. Um, she's very, she, she's been instrumental in thinking, for me, thinking about ability, disability, accessibility, um, especially when it comes to both bodily, mental, um, like literally everything. It just has really expanded my mind. So Velissa Thompson, um, of course, I know y'all know Minda Hard and Sarah Morgan, Janine True. I'm part of the uh, a group with her as well. Um, I mentioned a couple of books last time. I said I already talked about Adrienne Marie Brown, who again, I, anything she writes or develops, I'm so there. Um, another scholar that I think has been really instrumental in my journey has been. Charlene Carruthers, uh, a book that she wrote last year, really shifted my perspective on like, how do you approach systems work mm. um, if you want to like tear it all down? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, so what are the questions that we should be asking ourselves and other folks? So that was super helpful. And then just a couple groups I, I named last time, um, Girl Trek, uh, which is, I, I went to the Girl Trek stress protest this year. That was 700 Black women at the base of the Rockies in Colorado doing self-care and community care. 
And so that was really cool. It's an organization that works to prevent, like help black women prevent preventable diseases. So they advocate for black women to be walking or active at least 30 minutes a day so that they can, you know, meet their sisters and advance sisterhood. They can walk in the, the, um, the steps, the footsteps of their ancestors. And then also, you know, I think the statistic is 137 black women die every day from preventable diseases, Mm. which is something Mm. they brought up literally every single day in the stress protest. We were there the whole weekend, four days. We talked about that every single day. And so Girl Trek, Standing in Our Power, I'm part of a leadership cohort um, for women of color, um, gender nonconforming people of color and non-binary folks of color who want to lead from a healed space. And so it's infusing like healing and personal work, self-care with community care, entrepreneurship and leadership. And then two, a couple folks that I miss and I'm like kicking myself a little bit. Um, I'm a huge fan of Rachel Cargill and Layla Saad. Mm. Um, yeah. And they both, I mean, all of their scholarship, their accounts. I mean, they both uh, I know uh, Layla put out, she had a workbook. I think it was, it's called Me and White Supremacy oh, Workbook. Yes. Oh book. my gosh. Yes. Yes. Book. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I just love on the lead of those ladies and really thinking about, even as I think about like, what's my work? How do I center myself and the folks who I'm doing this work for while also speaking to white people? And I think for me, that's been really helpful to see how they've thought about like white gays and am I talking directly to white? Like, how how do I actually even do this? And it's just been really cool to see um, how their resources and their writing has shifted over the years. I know um, Layla has a podcast herself, mm-hmm. um, Good Ancestor, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she had a mm-hmm. she had another one. Wild is it Wild Mystic Woman? Something like that. Um, so they've just been thought leaders for me. Um, and then another person that I actually worked with and now is doing some work in the tech space, um, Tatiana Mack. Um, uh, this year, I think in particular, they've been sharing their own journey as a person of color, as a queer woman of color um, in the tech space. And so that's given me some perspective as well, um, knowing this person personally and also like seeing, you know, her show up at conferences. And there's like this, mm-hmm. she's she's been very open about what's been happening in the tech space as she names truths. And so um, I, I often look to her and see what she's up to and try to check in on her as well. Awesome. That's a wonderful list. Um, we'll have that all in the show notes so people can also, but that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so Stephanie, looking for your favorite movie that features a strong female cast. Yes. And I will be mysterious as I was last time. I <laughs> yeah. No preview, no summary, no spoilers. Um, watch Daughters of the Dust. It's kind of old school, um, but it's on Netflix, so you don't have any excuses. Um, and it's wonderful. Yes, watch it. Okay. I have not checked it out yet, <laughs> um, but I am going to check it out. Um, I was just telling, so I'm, um, Monday is a holiday. It's Indigenous Peoples Day here in D.C. And I am the only person in my household who has the day off. So I think that might be how I spend my day. So Stephanie, tell us about a favorite female musician or band. Yes, um, I have to say Beyonce. I've heard that it, that is a very popular answer. Um, but mm-hmm. I, not only do I enjoy um, just her body of work, especially in the last couple of years, 
seeing, you know, her performance at Coachella, also on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And then also Lemonade was, I was like, wow, like the visuals and the artistry and even the storytelling. I I just feel like um, I've been really inspired by her journey as someone using her platform for good, um, someone who's evolving in their journey as being an activist or speaking out on things. And I, I, I know that her husband is it's going through some other things and even thinking yeah. about that like how in a partnership you're doing this very particular work and maybe the values or how people are perceiving you know how your partner moves in the world is not congruent just seeing her respond and um and like like really talk about her journey through that has been really great so musician wise awesome and then also like her personal like how her platform has evolved is also um why I chose her yeah no she's she's wonderful um and I think was it was it Minda Hart Wendy that we had this conversation about Beyonce I, I believe so. Um, I know we've had the conversation a couple of times okay. because we have put out the call to Beyonce to be on the show. Um. <laughs> yes, yes, we have. Come on, Beyonce, you, you get named yes, on Yes, come time. on. Um, I think it was Minda. I think it was Minda, and I want to double check that and we'll edit that out if, if it was not Minda. <laughs> but um, we were talking about how Beyonce seems to me, her public persona, she has managed to seem really nice. Like, hey, I, I would love to hang out with her. I think if she knew me, she'd want to be my best friend kind of persona and at the same time be very very fierce um, and strong and how hard it is for women and especially black women to be able to walk those two um to be able to walk those two things at the same time um i think it 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 um like kudos to her i'm not i'm not even sure what i want to say about that but just to name i think i think it's just important to name that 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 is not something that um every black woman is able to manage or is afforded um it doesn't it doesn't come easy it doesn't come easy i was just going to use the word allowed yeah but i don't want to take agency away from people that doesn't feel right either like i don't know i th- i feel like i'm just going to come back to you. i think it's important to name and then that's it mm. yeah i think last time we talked a little bit and it, i think the person she was juxtaposed with was serena and yeah. so i think here when i think about like I, I brought up last time that it's the perception is really interesting and it's based on bias and conditioning. So mm-hmm. there are some folks who are like, you know, Beyonce, she's not nice and she's so private and she's been she she doesn't give a lot of public interviews. She like kept her pregnancy under wraps for a little bit. People were like, did she really have <laughs> did she really have a baby? Because we didn't see any pictures of her. Um, so it's, I think it's interesting, like the perception and the meaning making and, and race definitely has to do with it. I think, I think Beyonce versus Serena, I think there's like colorism also at play. Mm -hmm. Um, but like two people, even within the same racial group can do the exact same thing and be labeled something else. And so like, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting too. I just, also, it made me think about how I'm, I was sitting on a plane. I don't even remember. I've traveled so much this year. I was probably coming back from Portland, uh, one of those long flights. And I remember watching, um, I think it's called Being Serena or just Serena. There's an HBO special on her and like motherhood. Yeah. Did you all see this? No, I didn't. I haven't. Oh, yes. Yes. So she did a whole series about being pregnant, about motherhood, about like, you know, winning this title as she was pregnant like that series brought tears I was literally on the plane 
crying. And so like, you know, the perception is just really interesting because I, I, I can see them doing some similar things, but how they are perceived by other people is like, one's nice and one's fierce, but it's okay that right. she's fierce. Serena's fierce right. is like too aggressive. She's getting into the angry black right. woman territory. I just saw that that series. I just she seemed she seemed tender to me, and, and that's where I was going with the word allowed. Um, yeah, you know, not that yeah, 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 yeah. not that Beyonce or Serena would would look at it themselves, but what the media and how society views them. Um, I, that that's kind of where I was going with. Yeah, Beyonce, we like her, so she can she can be both. Serena, eh, we don't know if we like her or not, so maybe she can't be both. She's she's just a bitch because she's fierce and she's strong woman. That, that's kind of where where I. Mm-hmm was going with the word um mm-hmm. uh, allowed on so so stephanie i'm just going to change this up a little bit but favorite fictional female character yes um i don't read as much fiction these days and i that is a sad point and i will 2020 i will do better well it's not just in books that's why i switched it to just fiction that's true. fictional character that is true yeah. i didn't think of it yeah. that way what i i i was going to answer how i answered yeah. last time which is when i was growing up i was a huge fan of jacqueline woodson i like i was the library kid like my i would get lost <laughs> in the library my mom couldn't find me mm-hmm. i did every single yeah. like reading contest you know like get the pizza and the bike and the yeah. you know all that stuff i did all the things and i discovered jacqueline woodson and there was a book called maison at blue hill and i felt like it was the first time that i real like i was reading about a character that mirrored my experience and it's about Maison who I think she's I think she's actually from somewhere in New York and she goes to a boarding school maybe in Jersey or somewhere further south from New York um but as someone who like was navigating two different worlds like my home life was very different than my school life my school was in a suburb with mostly white kids um that that book really resonated with me and it was I I remember it being one of the first times I was like oh they are having my same experience. This is crazy. And um, it just was, it was, it was great to see. And one cool thing that I thought about um, all, after all these years, I did tweet Jacqueline Woodson. I was like, <laughs> I talk about you all the time in my training. Oh, very cool. And um, it was really cool that she responded and was like, great. <laughs> you can talk to people that you normally wouldn't talk to. So that was really cool. Twitter is like the great equalizer. Um, you can tweet You can tweet to people that you wouldn't even necessarily go up to if you saw them um, in person. Um I I um I don't like to fly and so yes. whenever I fly I have a very specific playlist that I listen to and it includes Liz Vice who's a gospel singer and so one day I was on a plane and like before we took off I tweeted about it's an interesting playlist it's a combination of Liz Vice who's an amazing gospel singer and Lizzo and so I tweeted to both of them you know I, I tweeted to both of them like y'all are my playlists that are going to get me flight and Lizzo hasn't responded yet but Liz Vice responded right away um and is also a Lizzo fan so that was a fun yeah it's fun when you tweet at famous people and they tweet right back yeah yeah yes and i just thought too i I, i'm sure it's a gift and a curse like talking to people that you wouldn't i think some people are also saying some things on twitter that they wouldn't say to someone Um, in person so yeah yeah, right two sides yeah so last question for you stephanie what do you like (laughs) to do outside of work and we ask this um, I think last time I said, I can't imagine that you have time to do anything else because you named so many things that you're involved in. Um, but um, research shows that 
the thing that kind of breaks down biases and and make makes inclusion work. One of the things is that when we see people as whole people, so um, you know, white men are more willing to mentor um, women and women of color if they see them as whole people and not just their employee self, right? So just helping us get to know you as a more full whole person and not just the work that we've been talking about tonight. Tell us about what you like to do outside of work. Yes. So I love cooking. My partner and I, we both like to cook. We cook together. We cook for each other. We've tried lots of different um, cooking uh, classes and baskets. I mean, literally, we've if it exists, we probably tried it, which is kind of cool. Um, I love reading. As I said, I could probably live in a library. Um, I love concerts, music, festivals. Atlanta has so much of that. There's something every single weekend. I think Afropunk is coming up. Pride is this weekend. There's so there's just so much going on here. Um, I do play rec sports, and that's a continuation of um, me quitting almost every single sport. As I grew up, I grew up playing like soccer, basketball, field hockey, gymnastics, ice skating. I mean, you know, I'm from Milwaukee, so we had we had hockey uh, and figure skating rinks. Um, so I did all the sports, but I've been in D.C. and a little bit in Portland and definitely here have played flag football and a little bit of soccer. And then probably my favorite thing, which I talked about last time, was um, finding new delicious flavors of tea, including all the things that come with finding those flavors. So I've got a couple tea sets. I've, I've been gifted beautiful tea sets. I've bought different tea paraphernalia. And there's a wonderful store here in Atlanta. There's lots of tea stores, actually. But one that I go to often um, is called Just Add Honey. And they've got the different herbs and spices. They've got the ingredients separately so you can try new combinations. The store itself has combinations and they'll, the people there are really knowledgeable. So they'll say, yeah, this like dandelion is for this and lavender is for this. And so there's like the actual like look of it, like the texture and the color, the feel. Um, and then there's, you know, like the healing properties. So I've been doing a lot of experimenting there with my tea paraphernalia. Yeah, that is so cool. Um, I, I think I said last time I, I want to plan a trip to Atlanta just to visit that store. <laughs> There's probably, well, so, oh, wait a minute. You were, you were in DC for a long time. Is there something comparable here in DC? Oh, you know, I was not as much of a tea. Well, that figures. A, a fish, <laughs> aficionado. Cause you know what? <laughs> you know what? The funny thing is I don't drink coffee. So I don't drink coffee. I don't like drink soda. But when I got to Portland, I tried like all different kinds of tea. So I've, I've actually had a lot of kombucha, so like the fermented tea. Portland is where I really honed my tea skills because everybody drinks coffee because the coffee's so great there. I'm there like, you go. Ooh, I don't really do coffee. Can we do tea instead? Um, and they've got a lot of tea bars there, but I will be on the lookout for a DC recommendation for you. Great. Thank you. Or I will ask just add honey. They, they should know. See the importance of networking. Uh, this is where we put out the call, Georgia, um, state of Georgia, if you would like HR wonder women to come out um, so we can sample your awesome teas. We are open to bringing the show on the road. <laughs> there you go. There we go. There we go. Awesome. Well, Stephanie, this has been just fantastic. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us tonight. Um, please share with our listeners um, who obviously are going to want to follow you, um, how they can get in touch with you online. 
Sure. Um, you can find me on all the platforms at Cultivated Sense. So it's C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-E-D Sense, like S-E-N-S-E-N-S-E. And I'm on Twitter, on Instagram. I have a Facebook page um, and LinkedIn. You can find me under my name. And depending on when this comes out, you may or may not be... Um, able to search for my new podcast and also Patreon page under the Take Nothing When I Die. And so you all mentioned that in my bio, um, those that is coming out very, very soon. So look out for that too. Take Nothing When I Die, the TNWID series on both um, Patreon and Anchor and all the platforms where you can listen to podcasts. Fantastic. Well, we will definitely share that and be sure to let us know when it does come out so we can share it with all of our network as yeah. well. Awesome. How about you, Anne? Still on that the new podcast. I'm really excited. I know, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So you can find me. I am not on all the platforms. You can find me on LinkedIn. You might be able to find me on Facebook, but you can definitely find me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Anne Tomk, A-N-N-E-T-O-M-K. Um, that is where I spend most of my social media time. And by the time this comes out, I'm going to speak this into the universe. By the time this comes out, you will be able to read a new blog at The Road Less Pedaled. And that's um, a WordPress site. Awesome. Thank you both. Um, and of course, you can find me on Twitter. That's the best way to find me. I love connecting there. Um, I am Wendell93. And uh, you can also find me on my blog, mydailyjourney.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this episode with others to spread the word about HR Social Hour and HR Wonder Women. Um, and, you know, join us the fourth Sunday of each month for the monthly HR Social Hour Twitter chat. We would love to have you there. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Anne. And for the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast and HR Wonder Women, this is Wendy. Now, go tell your story.